Good to be with you tonight. So I'm going to start with a story. Uh, I became a Christian back in 1993 when I was 14, so you know how old I am. <laughs> and uh, uh, came to faith, uh, really, I mean, through the ministry, most specifically a Sunday school teacher um, of mine, a group teacher. And so I became a Christian. I went and I told my dad, because I was the pastor of the church, I said to him, um, uh, the day I'd been at church and I remember looking at the scripture and believing it was true. And so I went home, it was after church, and I went to my dad who was working and um, said I'd like to join the church, you know, Presbyterian. I had to profess faith. That's what it meant, right? Profess faith. And so I went up, some, some weeks later, um, I went up in church in front of everyone, and I was asked some questions and professed my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And uh, sometime after that, maybe I think the next week after that, I um, was coming to church, 14-year-old middle school boy, or, yeah, I was still in the eighth grade at that time. I guess I was slow, I should have skipped a few grades, be good for Estonia. But anyway, I was still um, in eighth grade at the time, and um, I was coming into the, to the church store, and there was this older woman in the, in the church, um, Peg uh, is her name, and she looked at me, she said to me, and I, you know, we didn't normally chat me being a 14-year-old boy, and her being a woman over 60. Um, that wasn't our normal socializing. And she said to me, she said, she looked me in the eyes, and she said, I hear I have a new brother. That's what she said. Because she'd been missing the week I professed faith and, and members for the church. But she looked at me, she said, I hear I have a new brother. And um, a powerful moment to this day in my life. Right? It's like, what can take an older woman and a teenage boy and make them brother and sister? What is the power to do that? Well, we've been doing it. We're doing a series this fall on identity, our identity in Christ. And our topic for tonight, who are you? I am a brother or a sister. I'm a brother or a sister. And I'm going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark to talk about this. This is Mark chapter 3, reading from verse 31 to verse 35. You can follow along with me. And his, this is Jesus, and his mother and his brothers came... And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, let me just open this in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless this your word to us. Open our eyes to understand what it means to be brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen. 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 So this is, so what had happened, this is early in Jesus' ministry, and he was gaining uh, notoriety and fame earlier in the chapter. He'd appointed his 12 apostles, and he'd come home. He went home, it says back in verse 20, and the crowds were gathering around him so that they could not even eat. So much were people pressing around him. He was performing miracles, and he had this teaching with authority. And his family heard it, it says in verse 21, and they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Right? So Jesus, I mean, we know of his family later that they believed in him as Savior. Two of his brothers, James um, and Jude, uh, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem for decades later, uh, until his martyrdom, until his death. And James and, and, and Judas, Jude, those are letters in the New Testament written by brothers of Jesus. But at this time, they were like, 
how has our brother, what, he's gone crazy, right? Crowds are following him. He's got apostles. And anyway, they come out to seize him. And so they're coming here. You've got to envision Jesus is in one of these small houses that they would have had. And he's surrounded by a crowd. It's packed out, right? His family can't make it in the door. And, um, and the word comes to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus says something really provocative. Which is not like, oh, let me jump up and talk to them. Those, you know, my mother who raised me, Mary, and uh, my brothers, um, who I spent all these years with, all my life. And no, he says, he looks around and he says, who are my mothers? My mother and my brothers. It's whoever does the will of God. It's these people right here surrounding me. And so the first thing I want to say about that is, is Jesus has a big family. Jesus has a big family. But what do I mean by that? Like, he had a real life family. Sometimes we can forget that. Jesus had a real-life family. I mean, you get, it arose early in the church and grew stronger over the centuries that Jesus had no brothers. You might hear that these are his cousins or something. No, these were his brothers. He had brothers and sisters. That's recorded in the New Testament in many ways and by the uh, um, early, early church sources, early church history. These are his actual family members. And uh, you might say, if you just looked at this passage in isolation, you'd be like, man, Jesus is a bad son. I mean, you know, if my mother... And father and my brothers, I have two of those. If they showed up right now and they were like without looking to, you know, talk, have a serious talk with me about how I'd gone crazy, like I would probably leave you all hanging and go talk to them, right? Frankly. Well, maybe I wouldn't, I don't know. Um, but I would probably not respond in this way. Jesus is making this like, it's like, is he a bad son? Well, uh, there's an easy answer to that. No. What, what, what Jesus is saying here isn't, he's not lowering the bar. This we do in the modern age, maybe. He's not lowering the bar on family. Oh, no, it's really just my buds here, my friends. They're my brothers and my sisters. And forget those people who raised me, those who share my blood. No. He cared for his family, his family by the blood. You think of Jesus on the cross. There wasn't much he said on the cross. One of the things he did while hanging on the cross was to look down, and there was his mother Mary, there some of the other women, and also the apostle John. And what did he do? He said to John, here is your mother, and to Mary, here is your son. What was he doing in that moment while he's dying on the cross? Because frankly, then you can be excused for ignoring your mother. Like, if you are nailed to a cross, you have an excuse for ignoring your mother, right? Those are extenuating circumstances. But in that moment, what's he doing? Well, normally as a son, it would be his responsibility, right, to take care of his mother. But he's dying, and he's not going to be there for her in that way, to take care of her in her old age. So what he's doing is he's taking John and putting John in that place. Right? So when Jesus extends that family, when his family grows, that big family that Jesus has, he's not lowering the bar. He's saying that, that kind of powerful care and love that you have in family, he's extending it. He's extending it to the, all those who do the will of God. All those who do the will of God. And I think about this, having brothers. It's like, what does it mean that I have two brothers? Now, I would never probably say this uh, to their face because it would be too emotional and awkward. Um, but, you know, what does it mean to have brothers? I, would count, I can count on my brothers, my actual two brothers, who share the same parents. What do I mean by count on them? Like, if I needed a kidney, I know they would give me one. Not <laughs> two, but they would give me one. And if, I, if Christine and I died, I know they would raise my children. 
right? I don't even need to ask. I don't need to raise the issue with them. I know they would do it. That's what it means to have brothers. It doesn't even mean that, like, uh, they're the people I talk to the most on a day-by-day or week-by-week basis. We're actually very bad at that, me and my brothers. But even without that, just because of the blood that we share and all those terrible things we did to each other as children, (laughs) I can count on them for the hardest things in life. And so Jesus, he is a big fan. He is extending that. He's not denigrating his mother and his brothers, even though they're there to seize him because they think he's gone out of his mind. He's extending. He's extending that to others. So my second point, Jesus' family, I'm trying to be provocative here, is Jesus' family is better than your family. Okay? Jesus' family is better than your family. What do I mean by that? When people hear, like, this is so, this teaching by Jesus, like, brothers and that we have brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ, it's been so powerful. It's entered into our culture. Even in our post-Christian culture, people still use this kind of language. Fraternities, you know, use this language. Everyone is a bro. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's ingrained. Little do they know what they're doing is echo, echoing the teaching of Jesus. Um, and, uh, but what do I mean? Jesus' family is better than your family. People have two responses. If you have a and these do exist, a good family, right? A healthy family. Like, it may be when you hear that, you, you just have straight positive, it's like an easy transference. Okay, I know what it is to be loved by mother and father and brothers and sisters. I know what that is. And then it's a pretty straightforward transference. You're like, okay, so that's what I'm being asked to do by Jesus. To others, that's what I'm being asked to do. And, uh, however... I would say, even if that's your family, and follow along with me, Jesus' family is better than that. But I want to focus especially on, on the other case, which I think is most of us, to one degree or another, which is not that we come from families that model this really, really well. Right? Where it's just a simple thing. Like, yeah, I know what it is to have healthy, loving, committed, I can count on them. They would defend me, they would provide for me. Family relationships. Most, to some, most of us, to some degree or another, have some kind of dysfunction and some kind of trouble in those family relationships. It can be hard to have that exhortation, right? It's like if you're just transferring dysfunctional aspects of your family life onto this teaching, you're like, do I really need more family drama? It's bad enough that what I have from the people whose blood I share. Now I gotta have it from all of you folk too, right? Is that, is that what it means to have family? Well, I think of this, I'll tell a story. So back in the 19th century, early 19th century in New York, New York City, there was this policeman. He found a six-year-old boy wandering the streets. The six-year-old boy was named John Dooley. John Dooley. And this policeman tried to figure out, it turned out that the boy's mother had just died of uh, yellow fever. And so he took, took the boy into his own home. That's what the policeman did and raised him. Just like that. And so this boy, when he grew up, he became a preacher. And then with that policeman's house, he, he, he built a church on that exact spot on Broom Street in Lower Manhattan, called the, a church called the Broom Street Tabernacle. And when they were building the church, in the uh, cornerstone, the foundation stone, he put a Bible, he opened it to Psalm 27, verse 10. And Psalm 27, verse 10 reads, Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. 
Though my mother and father, though my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And so he opened the passage to that, that exact verse, and he left it in the cornerstone, and then they covered it over. And he led that church for decades and decades and decades. And later on, in the middle of the 20th century, the church, the foundation became unsound, and they were taking it apart, and they found the Bible in the cornerstone, open to that. What was that man, what was he laying hold of? It was that promise that though his parents were gone, this policeman, because he was a Christian, took him in and raised him as his own. Right? He became a son to this man. Even though they didn't share blood, in the genetic sense, they shared blood in a more powerful, in a better way. What makes Jesus' family more powerful, more strong, is it's based not just on... Uh, 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 shared parentage is based on the shared blood of Jesus shed for your sin. What does it mean when Jesus says, those who do the will of God? What does that mean? Well, Jesus is this, the ultimate example to us of the one who did the will of the Father, which was what? To accomplish salvation by laying down his life for us to pay the price for sin. By rising from the dead so that we would not face the consequences of that sin, so that we ourselves could have eternal life. And that, the blood of Jesus, binds together the family of God. The blood of Jesus is stronger and more powerful, strong enough to motivate that policeman to take in that orphan wandering on the street and raise him as his own. Strong enough for that orphan to grow up, to found a church, and to do ministry through the rest of his life. Enough ministry with enough impact to be remembered decades and decades later, to be talked about in the papers in the New York Times of the testimony it was, and, and decades beyond that, of the testimony it was that even if you, and this maybe this is your case, even if your mother and your father forsake you, even if your brothers and your sisters forsake you, God will take you in. Jesus will take you in. This is the power of what Jesus is saying to us. This is what it means to say we are brothers and sisters in Christ. For that lady Peg in my church when I was young and a new believer to say to me, I hear I have a new brother. What she was saying to me is we are bound together. We aren't just passers-by in a shared social activity. We are family. In the same sense that I am family, with, uh, my, my, my brothers by the flesh. We are family. And so I want to say that to you. If your own family has struggles, or if it doesn't give you the right framework to really understand what it means to be in a healthy family, I want to say to you that God will take you in. God will take you in. Last thing I want to say. The family of God has an open door. That's not quite, I was struggling over what the metaphor I want to use is. The family of God has an open door. Because what Jesus is saying, right, it's like access to his family is not uh, limited. He doesn't have a number, a maximum number. Unlike TLS, uh, no offense, Anna. <laughs> TLSNC, right? 15 people can be part of the family of TLSNC. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, not, so, not so. But what, what do I want to say by that? Here's how we approach life. And there are ways in which this is appropriate. I want to unpack this. There are ways in which this is appropriate. But ways in which we are so thankful this is not how Jesus approaches who are his brothers and sisters. Right? We approach life like it's bicker. We approach life like it's audition. Right? We approach life like it's a job interview. Right? We approach other people like we're, we're, we're auditioning them as to whether we, we like them enough to have them as friends, or we, we like them enough to, to date them. You know, and all those things are appropriate in the right context. 
Right? It's like, don't hire someone for the job if they're horribly wrong for the job. Don't date someone just because they feed you a lot of, well, any brother and sister in Christ should be able to get married. I can't tell you how many guys I know who have used that line. Right? It's like, surely you can date me. That's all the basis we need. No. It's like, that is a context in which it's good to be a little discerning and choosy. <laughs> right? Be choosy. But the family of God is not like that. It's not this, uh, it's not bicker, it's not auditions, and don't treat it like it is. Right? Those who walk on, I remember this uh, years ago um, in the activities fair down in Dillon, I was walking around, I was manning the PCF booth, but we had enough people, and I was walking around seeing all the other stuff. You know, and there's a friend from PCF, she's a writer still today, teaches writing, creative writing now. And she, um, she was manning the literary magazine, and, uh, I, you know, we were chatting about that, and she was saying... Um, but of course, like, I'm like, oh, you're looking for some good writers. She's like, that's right. I mean, they're only looking for people who are actually skilled. <laughs> Truth. As they should. And she's like, not PCF, though. We'll take everyone at the PCF table. I kid you not. I don't care if you're a terrible writer and can't sing and can't <laughs> act and even are bad at school. You're welcome here. And you're welcome to be my sister or my brother. But we approach life not in that way, not with the open door. And this is why the open door isn't quite right, because it's a little more like Jesus is sending his apostle out to grab people and throw them through the door <laughs> into the family of God. Right? Come on in. We are welcome here, whatever your skill set. <coughs> now what? This is a struggle in life as a Christian. There's this beautiful window in freshman year, where everyone comes in like blank slate. You know no one, right? And so everyone needs friends. Uh, it really hit, for me, second semester freshman year. It was like there was this tip over. It was after the winter retreat. It was actually after a trip to New York I got roped into in a freshman Bible study right before the winter retreat. After that, I had friends. Before that, I was like an observer. I was just marveling at Princeton um, my first semester. But after that, all of a sudden, there was this tip over into relationship. Oh, that's, a, that's one of the best things about being an undergraduate and being in college and about campus ministry. It's like there's so much openness right there. And the hard thing is, is the older you get, you can very easily fall into this in, in your life of just like, okay, now I'm going to approach, even things like church, even newcomer, any newcomer is just like, I'm going to approach this like a bicker process. Like, are you good enough to hang with me? You can be brother and sister, if you're good enough to hang with me. And in the church, it gets really, really entrenched. I mean, you, your life fills up. You get friends, hopefully. Lord willing, you get friends. You get intimacies with people, and you just close it out. One of the most important, and I want to give this as an exhortation to you all, one of the most important disciplines, I think, if you are a follower of Christ, if you count him as a brother, and you have cause to love Jesus, you have cause to call him the brother because he died for you. If, if that's true of you, then you need to have a discipline of openness in your life. There are all sorts of disciplines we pursue. Disciplines and improving skills, exercise, diet, uh, work. All these things we're committed to. And one of the things so often we're not committed to is I maintain an openness to what new sisters or brothers God is going to bring into my life this year. A permanent openness. It's not a like, okay, this year's over. I'm done with all of you. You could be my brother last year, and now just a whole new group of people. I've actually never really seen anyone make that error. 
I've seen a thousand people make the error of like, I'm done meeting new people. Almost no one who's too open. Almost no one. Eh, not no one, but almost no one who's too open. Open the door of your life. Not just today, not just while you're an undergraduate, not just like the first year you move to a new city and need to make friends. On a permanent basis, you have your community. You have your friendships. Open your life to the people God will bring into it. On a permanent basis. On a permanent basis. So this, looking ahead in Mark. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. And the man, you know, he's very upright, morally upright. But he, he's attached to his wealth. Jesus tells him he needs to give all his money away. And he goes away sorrowful. And Jesus says to his disciples how difficult it is for those who are well to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are like, this is too high a bar. And this is what Jesus says. Down in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. I love that. He throws that in. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I want to testify to you, it pays to uh, open the door of your life to new brothers and sisters. It pays. Jesus is right, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold. That's not even an exaggeration. A hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Even with tribulations, it pays to open the door. I even just, uh, you know, I take it for granted. Once I was uh, coming back from Princeton and Beijing, flying back, and we were at a labor in Japan, and there was a mix-up um, on my part where I, you know, hadn't arranged. We got to the hotel, and I hadn't arranged for a room. There's supposed to be a room for me. And I said to this, you know, Princeton friend of mine, I was like, oh, well, I can always just stay in your room. Because that's, like, you get to, you spend enough time around people who tr- consider you a brother in Christ, and, like, you get to assuming things like they let you sleep in their room. And he was just like, oh no. <laughs> you know? It's like one of these moments of clarity for me. Like our friendship was based on like we talked about stuff together. It was not based on like I can crash on your couch. I, because I've been following Christ all these years, it's put that discipline on me. I gotta open the door. You know, sometimes it is hard. It is not to say it isn't a discipline. To meet new people. It is a discipline to meet new people. But it is so much more worth so much more worthwhile the benefits that come from it than the benefits that come from money or position, fame, to know people. There is there's nothing that blesses you more than being in a relationship with people. That much more so when they're struggling and hurting. This it, uh, believe me when I say this is what is valuable. This is my hope for you, and I think Jesus' hope for you, that you would be his agents to extend that family to others. Now, next year, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, it will pay you back 100 times over. There will be, at a minimum, there will be people who will let you sleep on their couch. At a minimum. People who will care for you when you are in need. People who will take care of you in the way that normally you would only count on blood relatives. And I've seen that. I have seen that in the church, and I've seen it time and time again. 
over and over. Uh, may, that may not be your... It's not to say there aren't, as Jesus says, persecutions and tribulations. There are problems. I mean, I've invited into my home. And all the times I've been inviting people into my home, once or twice I've invited in stalkers, <coughs> um, uh, creepy older guys, um, uh, people who... Um, uh, turned out to be uh, habitual liars. I mean, sometimes it takes you a little bit uh, to catch on. I mean, I, it's not that if you if you if you open that door, it's not that no troubles will, will come in. But I look at even the problems I had, and they were so so few of all those interactions. Even of those problems, I would go back and I would repeat it again. Right? Let's open our door. Let's welcome in brothers and sisters. Do it now while you're at Princeton. Do it that much more so. The need right now in our culture, in our little socioeconomic segment, has never been greater, right? Because we idolize work. I will move to any city in any country for the sake of my career, and we denigrate relationships. Never has it actually been easier in the church to use this reality that we are brothers and sisters. Never has that been more needed. Never has it been easier to... to never has there been more of a vacuum. It used to be people had so much ingrained family relationships and community relationships it was hard to penetrate that. Now the need is so palpable. And I pray that we would all be agents of that. Family of God extended into the world around us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. It's such a hard thing, Heavenly Father, to understand, to truly grasp what it means to be a sister and to be a brother. To care for each other, not just because it's fun for now, not just because we're acquaintances, not just because we like each other and it's easy, but to have relationships as family have to family. Lord God, I pray that you would bind us together. Here at PCF, this little corner of your kingdom on the campus, one part of your kingdom on the campus, I pray that you would bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us to bear with one another. I pray that you would help us to learn from one another, to encourage one another, Lord God, to challenge each other when necessary. And Lord God, I pray that you would keep us from uh, closing the door. Or Heavenly Father, of just being apathetic, letting the door open a crack, but ignoring those who are outside. Lord God, give us eyes to see those around us. We know that you died. That, that all might come and see 